netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from FXGuide.com. Hi, and welcome to this FX Podcast. I'm John Montgomery. Thanks for taking the time to download it. Before we begin, I just want to mention to those of you who might not know, we've recently released both iOS and Android Android versions of our FX Guide app. I'm basically presenting a really nice, clean, and uh, content-focused look on the articles and other content on our site. Uh, You can find links to the Apple App Store as well as the Google Play Store in the right-hand column on the FX Guide homepage. Just scroll on down and you'll see links there in the right-hand side. Now, our podcast this week is with Hao Li. Now, Hao has uh, several hats. He's an assistant professor of computer science at the University of Southern California. He's also recently taken over as the director of the Vision and Graphics Lab at the USC uh, ICT. Uh, formerly Paul DeVevic was heading that. And he's also CEO and co-founder of Pinscreen Inc., uh, which is a social media startup. There's some facial tracking aspects of that as well. Uh, It's gotten a lot of venture uh, funding, and that's currently in development. But for this podcast, uh, Mike Seymour's chatting with Hal, and it's concentrating more on some of the research and things that he's concentrated on in the past versus more of the future coming up regarding pin screen. So let's go ahead and uh, cross that interview now. Here's Mike Seymour. So thanks for joining me for this chat. We really appreciate it. uh, You recovered from SIDGRAPH? Absolutely. Thanks. Thanks, Mike. So... um, These new uh, roles that you have, obviously you were at USC before, but you're now um, at ICT. Can you explain that? What's your sort of new role there? How does that work? Yeah, I'm uh, basically heading the uh, USC Institute for Creative Technologies, the uh, Vision and Graphics Lab. And um, it's sort of like uh, um, taking over Paul DeBevec's uh, graphics lab and uh, taking it to a new direction as Paul has uh, moved on to uh, Google VR recently. Yes, yes, we went and visited Paul at uh, Google and he and the guys there seem pretty happy. So, of course, your research agenda has been well established. Um, We've spoken to you before at FX Guide, but just for those that aren't so familiar, uh, I guess I first sort of understood your work in Faces from stuff you were doing at ILM. Just give me the quick Mm -hmm. plotted history that got you from ILM to where you are today. Yeah. Um, so um, after I did my uh, PhD at ETH Zurich, I spent a year as a postdoc at Columbia and Princeton, and later on joined uh, Industrial Light and Magic uh, to work on some uh, virtual production technologies on real-time uh, human, especially facial performance capture. Um, <clears throat> later on, I, I spent a year there and uh, joined uh, USC as a tenure track uh, professor in computer science. And basically to start my uh, research lab uh, to further research uh, in that direction. So the main research direction that we're focusing on is on human digitization. And uh, the big idea is that we want to democratize the technology and make it um, accessible to consumers and anyone else in the world. And um, one of the challenges there is that we can't use a constrained capture environment or anything that people are using uh, traditionally in the VFX uh, context or gaming context. Um, some of the research uh, that we're doing is mostly focused on learning uh, and uh, data-driven techniques. So just to be really clear about this, and we did have a podcast with uh, Paul um, 
So we know that it's all very friendly. But of course, for those that don't understand, it's not like a company. Uh, a university, you have um, obviously educational responsibilities, you have like contributions to the community, but there is a kind of a research agenda. So it totally makes sense that your research agenda and your team is different from that of Paul's. But in no way is Paul's stuff being kind of thrown out with the bathwater because he's still got an adjunct position there. And of course, you and Paul, I know, get on very well. Absolutely, absolutely. So um, <clears throat> Paul's research um, has uh, been pretty much complementary to uh, what my research was doing. Um, as I mentioned before, my research is a lot on focusing on deployable technologies, uh, real-time aspects. And um, Paul's, was, Paul's research was mostly focused on getting the highest possible fidelity of human capture, appearance capture on different objects um, using highly sophisticated hardware. Um, um, taking over uh, USCICT, um, I think one thing that we would like to do is, in collaboration with Paul as well, is to marry the two directions, the high quality aspect as well as the real time and the deployable aspect of it. I mean, the reality is that as marvelous as that stuff Paul's does, it's quite different because there are only a finite number of, of light stages in the world and only one of the giant ones that a whole person can stand in. And your team and your research has been, if I can just characterize it, been like, we're going to make it so that anyone can get access to this at some point. And so you've kind of been approaching yeah. the problem from a different point of view. Correct. So um, the, the way that we want to approach this is to use high quality or highly sophisticated hardware to capture a lot of data. Um, these data are very unique and um, you can only capture them in a controlled environment. But once you have collected a lot of these data, uh, what you can do is you can do you can build computational models that can resynthesize this information, even though your capture device is, um, you know, could be just a simple photograph taken from your iPhone. So um, a lot of my research recently is more focused on, you know, just using the plain, uh, simple camera that uh, anyone has in your pocket and trying to um, <clears throat> build complete avatars from it. And uh, one thing that we will have to do is to synthesize this information um, you know, from high quality capture. Yeah. So let me just touch on one thing. Like the work that you did at ILM, um, it kind of split a little. Obviously, ILM had its proprietary um, kind of applications that it's taken forward. And and also the guys did uh, Face Shift, which of course then ended up uh, inside Apple. But what was interesting when I was using Face Shift is it was using an RGBD camera. And I mm -hmm. found that to be really exciting. Now, in one sense, and I know you and I have discussed this in the past, but I just want to clear it up. You're not going for the lowest common denominator because of course you have to kind of anticipate where the technology is going. But by the same token, you don't want to go for something that's like only available 10 years down the track and hence... So it's not as if you're saying, oh, I'm only going to make my stuff work with an iPhone RGB. But having said that, you do have applications that are just RGB and not RGBD. Correct, correct. So, um, <clears throat> I mean, um, a lot of the technology, I mean, everything will depend on like how things will evolve over time. Um, I think a lot of the uh, depth sensor manufacturers haven't um, truly figured out what are the uh, killer apps. I mean, a lot of people have looked into how to capture, um, you know, how to use it as a 3D scanner, um, a lot for 3D printing purposes. But I think uh, what's coming up next uh, pretty soon is uh, the um, uh, technologies that will allow us to create our own avatars and to be able to use these avatars in a completely different way. 
Um, if you had a depth sensors, of course, uh, it would be uh, really useful. Um, one reason for that is that you know um, you can work. You can work in the darkness. Uh, it can work in any kind of environment, and uh, you have access to per pixel depth information. And if you have pixel uh, access to this information, <clears throat> then you can get uh, potentially a much higher resolution input. So collecting this data is always better. Um, on the other hand. Um, uh, those kind of technologies are limited by, you know, using, uh, requiring a lot more power uh, to be uh, deployed on mobile devices. So I think um, absolutely it depends a little bit on the applications. Um, you can think of, you know, for self-driving cars, um, depth sensors could be uh, deployed. So there is no power issue there, uh, I suppose. I mean, I mean, we have had some success with the Connect One and Microsoft work that really, I think, yeah. opened a lot of people's eyes to what uh, could be done. But as you say, like right. that's a fairly fast-moving and quite unpredictable landscape in that even the tech that Microsoft was using changed between the last two generations. Um, right. So if I can just swing back to a second just to sort of for the face idea and this point that you made about the avatars, you, you had a terrific um, course on uh, digitizing the human body at SIDGRAPH this yeah. year. Do you want to just quickly tell me who was on that? And then we might get into this idea of what the challenges are in being able to sort of pull off a, uh, you know, grabbing someone and, and digitizing them. But who was on that uh, on that course? Yeah, so it was a joint collaboration um, between uh, USC as well as the MIT Media Lab uh, run by uh, Ramesh Raskar. Um, the, um, you know, um, People who gave the talk were um, myself, Anshu Mandas, Tristan Swedish, uh, Pratik Shah, and one of my PhD students, Ling Yu Wei, as well as Ramesh Raskar. Uh, we split the um, course uh, into two parts. Right? So the first part was mostly um, trying to present, uh, you know, a um, a comprehensive um, <clears throat> presentation on how to, you know, digitize human bodies, human faces, human hair uh, in the context of computer graphics for, you know, visualization, VR, uh, etc. And um, the part that they were focusing on was a lot on health and visualization. Yeah, because there are an enormous number of applications, uh, both at MIT and also stuff that's done in other areas at, uh, at USC in terms of using stuff. And, and that brings me actually to another aspect of this, which is VR. Now, I don't want to focus a lot on VR, but I do want to acknowledge that you've yep. made some incredible contributions to facial capture or, and expressions of someone's face when they're wearing a VR helmet, which I, I found sort of remarkable. So, uh, so VR is part of this, isn't it? But it's not, I don't want to focus on it too much, but it is something that you've been looking at. Yeah, I mean, uh, VR is an important platform that uh, people are exploring um, to see whether or not it will take off in the coming years, right? So obviously there are some uh, interesting challenges like, you know, you know, motion sickness and, you know, even the, the form factor, I think is not ready yet for a massive deployment uh, in the consumer space. But I think um, one important thing that we are trying to look at from a research standpoint is that if you are immersed in a virtual world, um, you would like, I mean, the obvious thing that you would like to do is go beyond just consuming three-dimensional content, interactive content or 360 videos. And an important thing with, is basically to see, can we use it as a communication device for social interactions, right? So this, this could have huge impact in terms of, uh, you know, 
the energy problem. Um, if I wanted to have a face to face meeting with you, I would have to, you know, I can turn on Skype, but it's, there's a big difference, um, than if I were, if we were in the same room and mm -hmm. having a conversation. So that's only possible right now. If I, you know, take a plane, uh, to uh, New Zealand or wherever to meet with you. But, uh, if we had, uh, you know, a device where we can remotely talk as if we were in the same space, that would be a big, uh, Big changer, big game changer. Yeah. Okay, so let's assume for a second that VR is one of these key technologies. And I say, you've done some great papers on that, earlier stuff with even sensors inside the VR helmet. But we could spend the whole time talking about that. I'm not going to. I just want to flag it. If people are interested, they can follow up with uh, some of the papers that you've published. So getting to that, um, this new SIDGRAPH 2016, uh, which was a really great panel looking at a bunch of stuff. So a couple of things that you, um, you touched on there and at SIDGRAPH, I'm not going to go too far into, in particular, body modeling. I'm going to stay, if I can, with faces. So we seem to have a yeah. problem of, of capturing a model of my face, a capture of mm -hmm. interpreting what my face is doing at any one time. And then, of course, a capturing, sorry, uh, well, I guess it's a capturing and rendering problem of, you know, my characteristics, um, yeah. right up to some terrific new work you've done on, on hair. Can you just give mm -hmm. me the kind of overview then, like, how solved do you think the problems are and what are the challenges in just capturing a model of my face? It seems like your work is already getting terrific results in that area. Yeah, um, it's, um, <clears throat> we're, we're, I think we're getting there, right? So I think, um, of course, there's always the question of um, you want to uh, cross the uncanny valley. Uh, that's something that uh, I think people have been working on for a very long time. I don't think we're too much uh, away from it. Um, there are two types of approaches if you wanted to, um, you know, get a realistic face. One is using parametric model. That is uh, the um, standard approach that people use in games and VFX. And uh, you need to have, I mean, even until now, you still need some artistic work to improve to perfection the look of a face so that it looks realistic enough. That's one thing that people um, are working on to improve it. Um, the other uh, way is to use a combined, you know, image-based and parametric model approach. Um, that's probably the lower hanging fruit and something that uh, we're also actively working on in order to create a realistic digital face uh, so that it doesn't look uh, fake. Um, and um, I think uh, the big challenges there is to make it work in uh, any kind of situations, right? So um, if you're in a controlled setting, um, sure, then, you know, you have, you can put multiple cameras around the face and uh, you can capture the face from all kinds of angles. You could potentially spend a lot of time capturing different expressions of that person. But then the real difficulty is how can we build these models on the fly, right? So can we, using minimal information. So we're really trying to address this problem from the extreme of, we just have a random image that we're taking from the internet. And uh, I'd like to create a digital human face from that. Now, if you were, if you give it to a super high end, uh, digital artist, really talented guy, you give him one or two, you know, reference images of a face from the front, from the side, uh, with uh, actually within not even too much time, maybe in a day or so, he can actually sculpt the entire model from it at very high quality and potentially even create a realistic rig um, that can be used for animation. And um, one thing that we're trying to look into is, is there a way to develop an algorithm um, 
we're especially looking at an AI approach uh, based on machine learning or uh, more specifically on deep learning to, um, to have the ability to infer semantically um, correct, uh, you know, facial, functional facial models from, you know, as little as just a single image. So let's just be really clear about that as we break it apart for people. So, uh, so I've got some footage of somebody. Now, there's one yeah. thing, as you say, to do photogrammetry and reconstruct a, effectively a point cloud mesh of the face, but that isn't something that I can easily animate because obviously it's just a kind of unconnected series of points that have no understanding that the eyebrow is kind of linked, etc. Then there's this idea that, um, that I'm going to have some pre-made generic face that is rigged um, and I guess we should touch on blend shapes, PCA and joint-based uh, rigs, but I'll come back to them in one second. So we've got this rig, whatever it is, and now it doesn't look like me, but I could sort of bend it, morph it, morph it to look like me. And of course, if I could do that, then all the pre-existing rigging I've done would be great. And so before I get onto the deep learning, you're basically looking at kind of techniques around this, just get beyond the point cloud to a kind of a rigged version of my face that's kind of valid. Is that a fair summation? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. So it could be um, it could be actually a point cloud, but it could be even less. It could be a projected face onto an RGB image. So it's nothing more than just a bitmap image. And uh, the problem with that is that you have, it's a combination of a huge physical process of rendering a physical face onto an image. Uh, where you have, you know, the shape of the face that plays the, that plays a role, the illumination of the environment, the appearance information of the face, so all that would have to be extracted from a single image, and that is, uh, you know, <clears throat> it's highly ill-posed. But what is possible is you can actually provide a plausible explanation of what these different components are. Right. And one of the inference problems that we're trying to solve is trying to have the ability to extract all this information. So there is the shape, but there's also the motion. So from the shape, what you like to do is you like to obtain uh, a semantic, semantically meaningful um, you know, representation of what the space is. For example, you would know for every pixel or every vertex on a three-dimensional model um, to which um, shape it would correspond to if you have an existing um model or a database of model reference model, you could potentially establish the correspondences uh, in this way. And uh, you know, in terms of like rake or expression shape, um, the more information you have, the more you can um, you know, refine uh, a uh, prior to, toward what data you are capturing. I mean, it is an extraordinary thing because we talk about you know, um, machine vision and stuff, but really the computer just is seeing a bunch of pixels and wow, we can immediately see a face. We can see a face in clouds for crying out loud. So we're clearly good at it. But from the computer vision point of view, like it's just giving this image and it's not even being given it in a kind of a neutral lighting setting. Like I'm looking at a picture of you and you've got like light on the left of your face, dark on the right. It's like, you know, the shadows completely affect my perception of, of um, stuff. And even then, like, We've got hair, glasses, uh, things that are obstructing. Like it's a ton of stuff that you're asking the computer to do to even understand what's going on. So let's let's bring in this idea of the um, deep learning. So what do you mean when you say deep learning, and why does that help us? Yeah. So actually, there's something that is happening since uh, a couple of years. Uh, there's a huge, I would say, um, probably a revolution happening in computer vision. If you 
attend now computer vision conference is all about deep learning. And uh, the reason for this is so deep neural nets are basically bio-inspired um, representations um, that tries to so you can think of it as a um, super powerful nonlinear function, right? That has a very strong learning capacity. And the idea is that if you provide sufficient training data, you, the network is, which consists of you know, multiple layers of convolutional networks, the network, um, which has millions of parameters, for example, and one thing you can do is if you provide sufficient training data with labeled inputs, it is capable of trying to infer the correct answer in runtime on a new image that has never been used for training. So, um, so the really, so, so yeah. I'm going to say that the, you're absolutely right. Like that, that was like a wave that happened. Um, I'm going to say like 2012, 2011 kind of thing where suddenly every algorithm that people were using for doing image identification stuff yeah. suddenly went, Hey, we can get so much better with deep learning. And, and again, um, I noted that you said that, like, it's not just that you give it training data, it gives you training data with the correct solution. It's like saying, here are a bunch of problems and here are the solutions and you try a few. And if you get the solution, note how you did that, because that's probably become relevant in the future. Try another one. You got that, that worked? Okay, take a note of that because that might become relevant. And so once you've done that, which is obviously slow, now we get the fast stuff, which is what you're doing, right? Which is kind of, once it's worked out stuff, it can actually then do it the next time much, much faster. Right, right. I mean, the um, training process itself is very slow, but the... Um, but we uh, don't care, really, do we? Was that? We just don't care. Like, we don't care if the training data was slow to set up. Exactly. It's all an off, off, uh, offline process. But once it's trained, the test time can be very fast, right? Depending on the dimensionality of the problem. Um, I think the biggest difference with uh, what we have right now compared to what we had before is that previously um, many computer vision problems relied on or computer vision techniques relied on, you know, human designed, you know, feature descriptors in order to extract certain information from, uh, for example, an image or a depth um, or a depth map. And uh, a lot of these geometric uh, techniques also relied on, you know, a good prior, a good initialization. Uh, what is remarkable with deep learning is that it instantly gives you the right solution if you have sufficient training data, um, you know, to train your network. So that is a huge um, that is a huge game changer in terms of uh, how we are approaching these problems. So instead of a traditional bottom-up approach, you suddenly have a top-down approach where even semantics are being extracted and learned automatically without having a person to specify how specific, you know, descriptors should actually look like. So, okay, so in the work that you're doing, we can just get specific for a second, um, like what sort of rig are you using? What sort of training data are you providing? And, and um, is, the, is it literally like a three, four, how, how deep is your neural net? Um, it really depends on the case, right? It can be not very deep. It can be just consist of like two layers, but it can also consist of 16 layers. And um, the choices of these deep neural nets, um, you know, there's not a good understanding of like what is actually a good number. Uh, people find these, um, you know, these uh, architectures based on, um, you know, experiments. Experimentally, uh, they have tried it out and they achieve the, you know, top performance. Um, or they see that things are not improving any further if you add additional layers. Uh, sometimes people also pick um, the right architecture based on 
there is already an existing data set. So for example, if I wanted to do um, a semantical segmentation for faces, for, for instance, um, they would take a semantical segmentation network that is gen general and works for you know arbitrary objects or interesting objects. And uh, what they would do is they would refine it. And um, it's typically much more convenient to just use an existing network that has certain numbers of layers and to go from there. So usually um, the design of the network depends on what is available, where the data has been pre-trained. Some of them require months of training, right? So uh, you don't want to um, waste is, your time. Yeah, is there a published uh, training data set that had a bunch of students, postgrads or undergrads sitting around labeling stuff? Is there a, a published one of those that you use or is it your own one you developed in-house? Yeah, depending on the application, uh, many of them are publicly available and um, the community is very open, right? So people share a lot of data. So that's, um, so, so, so the pace of, uh, you know, um, advanced uh, research advancement is extremely fast there, right? People even skip, uh, you know, waiting for the next conference deadline. They would just instantly just post it on archive. <laughs> Yeah, it's certainly, it is certainly fast moving. So obviously you've got these training data sets and somebody set them up. I'm wondering how specifically they map between the, um, the sample set that you're provided and what you can solve. In other words, let's say there's some bias in the sample set, like it's ethnically biased to one group or it's age bias. Is that going to limit what it can solve or is there an extent to which that the algorithms can interpolate beyond the training data? Yes, I think this is not so well understood. So um, what people would do is they would just provide a really, really large amount of training data and also a, a data set where people can validate um, or assess the performance of it. Um, that's why um, you, have, you obviously have um, successful uh, qualitative outputs, but then the quantitative actually matters a lot, right? So if you have... I don't know, uh, 1 million images, and then you can say, well, 90% of the cases will actually work. These are extremely, extremely good uh, results. So we have examples, for instance, when we're trying to do hair segmentation, right? So we, we have data sets from all over the place. There are existing data sets where people have labeled hair data. Um, we also um, um, have an interface that we allow uh, Amazon Turkers to um, automatically label hair information for us. And what we'll do is we'll either use part of this data for our training uh, or we will use them to validate um, the quality of our network. Well, you brought up a really good point there, which is we tend to think of faces as being like what I'm going to call a hockey mask and that we're talking about this face um, as such. But but beyond the hockey mask, we have really big issues with um, hair. So let's say we've got face segmentation working. That's great. But what we tend to produce is this kind of I don't know how else to describe it, really hockey mask solution. You guys have done stuff beyond that. You've not only got that face and obviously tracked it so that we can see it, the head moves up and down and starts talking, but then you've extended it into hair, which I think is remarkable. Can you discuss that for us? Yeah. So um, <clears throat> one of the biggest problems is with, uh, you know, actually any existing face trackers is that they rely the face to be mostly visible. So they wouldn't even work if you, you know, um, put your hands in front of your face. And that's an important thing because when you have a conversation, you have a lot of like face to hand gestures or, you know, when you're thinking or you can put your hand in front of your mouth. And 
the other obvious thing is hair, right? So there's a lot of hairstyles that are occluding half of your face. Um, so a lot of the face tracking algorithms won't work there. So in an augmented reality setup, it's very uh, annoying when you have like a face that's like jumping around or a mask that's jumping around. So we have addressed this issue uh, using by developing a new real-time uh, deep neural net that can produce a probability mask map uh, that which we can extract a binary mask out of it that get, that tells you what is the face and what isn't the face. And this mask can be used for two things, right? So one is obviously for visualization. It's very nice when you can actually overlay, for example, if someone is wearing a sunglass, you can actually overlay the physical sunglass on top of a different mask, uh, digital mask on top of the, uh, the user. Um, the other thing is that it significantly also improves the, um, the face fitting problem. So if you know what is the face and what is the background or the foreground, you can remove this information and significantly uh, reduce the dimensionality for 3D fitting. Yeah, so it's exactly the same techniques that we were talking about with the faces uh, applied to the hair, although of course... Now, I should point out that I think your hair research goes beyond just what's happening on the forehead, right? You can do kind of, um, like I've implied that that's the case, but your hair research handles like braids and things at the back of a head. Yeah, correct. So if you wanted to build a complete hair model uh, from, um, you know, from just a single view of that image, um, the first thing you need to do is to get the overall hair shape, right? So that can be obtained if you segment the hair automatically. And that gives you like a rough idea of how it looks like. And the additional information is uh, whatever can be seen from the front. And if it's possible, you, you would like to also extract, um, you know, individual hair strands or at least those that are visible. So based on that information, one thing you can do is you can infer what is the most likely um, hairstyle that would go with this projected hair model onto that image, given as well as the, um, the face model, right? So once you have that face model, you get an overall um, hair shape, and that hair shape could be used to actually drive um, the growing of individual hair strands. And that's sort of like how we um, how we approach the problem of single view hair modeling uh, that we presented last year's SIGGRAPH. Right. In a sense, I feel like hair is a more of a plausible solution than than like a precise solution. Like in a face, if I was to raise an eyebrow just a couple of mil, it's going to give you a different impression of my underlying emotional position. But hair isn't like that. It feels like hair is more forgiving. Um, having said that, obviously, very characteristic to the individual. But if you get it kind of close, you get a long way there, a lot longer, a lot further than you would with a face in terms of an expression. Yeah, that is absolutely that is true, right? It's just like water simulation. Like every wave doesn't have to be look exactly real. But uh, the big challenge with hair, though, is that first of all, hair isn't a surface that is just like outs, you know, just like skin. Uh, hair is volumetric, so it yeah. has a lot of interesting, different, uh, you know, occluding structures. And uh, the other problem with hairstyles is that they span an extremely large variety as well as colors, right? So it can come in any color. It can have multiple colors. And uh, it's really hard to define what is the um, space spanned by hair, right? Whereas for faces, that's something you can relatively do well uh, with a linear model, right? So the idea is that um, if you have enough, a large enough database, you can find a new person and you can say that person roughly looks like a linear combination of existing 
um, subjects inside that database. Whereas for here, you know, there's no notion of like linearly combining different here models. Um, you really have to either explicitly have, you know, a large number of hairstyles and then take parts of it and then recombine them into new ones. So when we're talking about hair moving, um, do you reduce it to a classic kind of mass and spring system or is it sort of, I mean, there are other things, obviously elastic rods or whatever. What, what do you do to make it not just flicker between frames? Yeah, I mean, um, it really depends on the application again. If you just want to animate it, uh, obviously simulating it is a very good idea. But if you wanted to match the uh, motion of hair with a... Um, with an existing um, input video or multiple videos that are captured from different side, then obviously you need to introduce um, <clears throat> additional regularization parameters. One possible way is uh, the introduction of you know simulation parameters to guide or to explain how hair should actually move in non-visible parts. And non-visible parts can be the back of the hair or it can also be inside of the hair. Um, it's also very difficult, um, especially due to all these occlusion and complex motion, to capture um, even you know visible hair, how visible hair would actually move. Um, but as you pointed out previously, um, the nice thing is that it doesn't have to be entirely real, right? So if you if you're off by you know twenty strands, no one will realize that. Yeah. So so we've talked about you know making a face. We talked about um, being able to sort of uh, deal with that and add in extra dimensions and now the hair. When you're actually running something in real time, um, so we're no longer in that training space environment, we're trying to run it, is it still as was when I was playing, say, with face shift, doing feature tracking, which was a relatively sort of sparse data set, or is the is that no longer the sort of like uh, the cornerstone of actually resolving what I'm doing in the real time kind of application? Well, in phase shift, um, it was more than just feature tracking, right? So feature tracking was applied to specific areas such as eyes and mouth. Yeah. Um, for anything else, you actually have the um, the per pixel depth information yeah. from your depth sensor. So the whole thing reduced to a geometric fitting problem. Okay. So you, you basically had to minimize the distance between the template model uh, to the given input data. Um, but for a 2D input, um, there are several approaches to do this. What we're trying to do is to have an end-to-end -end solution that just tells you, given that image, what is the 3D model directly. And you do that. You, you do it incredibly quickly. Um, but it's still a feature tracking problem or not? In the it is a feature tracking problem, but um, it depends on how you actually define it, right? So when you say feature uh, so the traditional approach is to track local features, for example, yeah. that corner of your mouth. Yeah. Um, but you can also see this entire thing as a global feature, right? So the it's um, it's just a higher dimensional space, and uh, you're looking at the entire face. Okay, well, let's say we've done that, and of course, there's another phase which I'm not going to get into. We're just like rendering it, and you know, obviously, that's a bit based on the sort of hardware you've got and you know how much you can punch. But let's assume for a second that we've got this all working. Can I just now? change direction completely and just discuss this as an overall philosophical problem. I'd really like your insight on this because it seems to me that this issue of doing these face things was a, uh, an algorithmic problem and it was a rendering problem for years. And then suddenly it looked like we got two huge additions that have made a massive difference. One of them is we've already discussed, the deep learning idea, neural necks and decision trees or decision forests. The second mm -hmm. is simulation and the simulation yeah. work has come along so far. 
Um, is it just me or do you feel like that's what's happened? You've got these like two additional bodies of knowledge which actually tap into you know, vast other scientific communities that are really helping us get somewhere with these faces. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> simulation has been there forever, right? I mean, um, people have been looking um, at, you know, simulation techniques way before um, they looked at, uh, well, I mean, probably at the same time, but in terms of like 3D capture, I mean, simulation was used before. Um, there's always been a um, kind of, um, it's, I mean, as you mentioned, it's a, it's a little bit of a philosophical question. Like, do we want to simulate, you know, the biomechanics of a face or do we want to uh, use learning or a data-driven approach to explain how a face should look like? Um, this really depends on the research lab and how people would like to approach this. They all have uh, pros and cons um, for you know, simulation from a simulation standpoint, as long as your simulation model is very, um, very realistic and can reproduce the physical phenomenon, then it's very good. The, the, the biggest challenge there is that it's computationally um, very often very complex. Mm. Uh, that's why people like to use data driven or, you know, reduced models uh, in order to represent how the face looks like. Um, so uh, depending on the application, people like to combine both of them. It doesn't have to be either or. For instance, you can train a deep neural net using simulated information, right? So you can build a synthetic model of a face um, and then uh, use physical simulation to simulate, you know, collisions between lips and, you know, all these kind of effects. And you can use that for learning. Um, <clears throat> right. So you could, I mean, the traditional approach would be even, to just like and capture someone using a data capture performance-driven uh, approach, and then to simulate you know secondary effects as a post-processing. So I think both uh, approaches have their you know valid um, use case. Um, and what people do is like you would probably combine it uh, in a uh, in a system depending on the application. I was thinking about mouths for a second. Um, so like for example. You're right. I mean, obviously, flesh sims are incredibly expensive, and and that people have done terrific things at the high end with you know airflow volumes causing you know stuff to happen with the lips and feature films. But even things like sticky lips and stuff can provide a lot of great kind of nuanced stuff. Um, mm -hmm. Where do we go when we get inside the mouth, though? Is that a sample problem or is that a simulation problem? Because it's really kind of hard to get, to get any good data on a tongue and teeth, but the teeth are the only point that the skull is fixed that we can see on the exterior, and so pretty important. And they do, of course, matter so much in believability with lip sync. Right. So um, yeah, so they are absolutely important for speech animation, and uh, you'll probably see some of the interesting work that we'll uh, present at SIGGRAPH Asia, where we're not taking the simulation approach, but the physical world works like a simulation, and um, you know all the complex interactions are you know could be explained through physical models, physical simulation models that explain how um, the motion and the interaction between different components uh, should behave. Um, but um, as I mentioned before, computationally, sometimes it makes more sense to use a data-driven approach. So what we did in our new work is that we are <clears throat> using pre-animated um, characters, using you know high-quality animation curves that would drive how the tongue and the teeth would actually move uh, depending on what kind of input. And we have a specific way to produce more data and to make the training data scalable in order to train, um, in our case, a deep neural net that can tr 
translate, map directly an input imagery onto a high quality um, character rig. From a philosophical point of view, is that sort of a bit like what you're doing with the hair? I mean, it sounds a bit like what you're doing with the hair in the sense yeah. that... Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Because that's, that. again, I would suggest probably that it's similar and that while we're very cognizant of what's going on with the lips, what's happening inside right. the mouth is a bit like um, the hair in that it's plausible, it works. Um, right. I know when actors are lip syncing without making any noise, like they're miming, it's always important to to actually sort of say the word so their tongue moves, otherwise it looks super fake. But I don't know I would know the difference between a, a good <laughs> mime and a bad mime, but I just want to see the tongue kind of move. But Right. Yeah, it really boils down to like uh, how much motion you have, right? I mean, um, the, the, the key thing here is that we're trying to create something from um, – from a perspective where you say, this is what a high quality digital animator would do. If you look at Pixar, um, they are not using any motion or they're not, at least we don't know, right? So at least they claim that they're not using yeah, they're any not. Um, motion capture. Motion capture. Everything is like hand animated. So if, if it's hand animated and you cre- create these believable, uh, beautiful, um, you know, facial expressions on, you know, even abstract, uh, abstracted face models, then um, the idea here is that the information is there somewhere, right? So it must be a way that, you know, even with a reference reference image video, you can reproduce um, this kind of data. So that is more like the focus that we're trying to do. We're not trying to necessarily, I mean, we could use training data from simulated uh, input data. It doesn't really matter. But um, the whole idea is that we can infer this information. How can we extract this information using a machine learning approach? Yeah, I mean, I saw a really good paper that was talking about head orientation and they literally just got a computer animation of the head at every different angle, which gave them very precise solution to the training data in a three-dimensional sense, which would be very hard for a bunch of undergrads to, to do with a pen. And of course, right. that was great. Hey, um, but the, sticking with the mouth for a second, the big problem that you've got now, which gets us back to where we started, which is the idea of RGBD versus RGB, is that while the top teeth are marvelous in that they're attached to the skull and we know exactly what they're doing and they have no skin over the top to hide the movement because they're super fixed, the jaw <laughs> is the exact opposite. <laughs> the lower teeth right underneath it are going in right. and out in Z relative to the camera in a way that's really hard for an RGB camera to work out. And one of the huge advantages of the depth one, which is you could tell if the jaw was in or out. How do you get around that? Is that is, does the training data get you there? Well, I mean, uh, uh, if a person can't tell, then it's probably really challenging <laughs> for the machine. Um, but, uh, you know, potentially using contextual information, if the person is saying something, uh, you might be able to get something. But you're absolutely right. If you're... Um, Especially if your illumination condition is not explaining that, um, then um, no, there's no way you can you can see it. I mean, if there's no motion in your video, then <laughs> <laughs> yes, right. Um, and so, so what we're seeing, of course, is this terrific collision as we've discussed of these sort of multiple techniques. We haven't really discussed bodies, but a lot of the things that we were referring to, you did discuss in more depth in the um, in the SIDGRAPH uh, course, where of course you covered uh, capturing bodies and and a lot more stuff. Um, one thing we haven't just touched on, I don't know how much we can. We, I know you're still in stealth mode, but your company um, mm-hmm. that you are uh, working on, I don't think you're out of stealth mode yet, but you have actually shown a little bit in Europe yeah. of what you're doing and you did another demo um, uh, uh, in, uh, at SIDGRAPH. So can you just tell me 
or tell everyone what it is that your company is doing, at least what you're willing to say your company is doing so yeah. far. Yeah. Um, so yeah, as you mentioned, we're in stealth mode right now. Um, and, um, what we want to do, we want to build a social media platform with some, uh, really interesting AR capabilities and it's not, I can, I can tell what we're not, we're not going to try to do another, you know, Snapchat lenses or masquerade. Um, <clears throat> we're trying to really understand like what is something that people can, you know, can get the engagement of users, um, at a very long time, right? Something that could get actually people excited to do. We want to focus on, um, content creation as well, right? So something that we will use to communicate visually. Um, and I probably won't say more than, uh, more than that. Um, but, uh, we have showcased a few things, a few features, um, at these conferences, basically to understand a little bit like how people like it. And from a technical uh, community also to sample a little bit like, um, you know, how their reactions are uh, toward this and um, how they can actually have fun. Right. And I think we have been really successful. Uh, we were uh, demoing this at CBPR. We had a booth and uh, it was really crowded. Right. And um, I mean, most of them were really like the, the top uh, facial capture people. You had a lot of companies uh, working in this domain. They were really interested. And um, but, uh, you know, it's it's kind of like similar. It's like, it looks like a face swapping application, but there's a huge difference, right? So the big difference is that we can actually produce, uh, super easily, uh, a complete hair, uh, face model, including hair of that person and, uh, use it for tracking. So we can replace them in different cases. The obvious applications you can think of are, you know, like in gaming or VR, we can have personalized characters, but we're trying to like really go beyond this and try to develop something uh, you know, it's really going to be an interesting social media application that we use that. So just to describe the pin screen uh, app demo um, to those that haven't seen it, it's like I, and I, I've done it, you literally are in front of a camera for what it seems like no time at all. <laughs> and suddenly yeah. it's managed to get a version of my face. Now I can right. make that version bigger. I can puppeteer right. myself. I could also yeah. grab your face and puppeteer your face. And in right. all respects, it's remarkably robust and remarkably fast. I don't know how long it takes you to work out me, but it had never seen me before and, it, and I couldn't even talk to you. I couldn't even verbalize how quickly it was uh, happening. It was just sort of almost seemed instantaneous. It obviously isn't instantaneous, but it must be really fast. Right, right. And I think the other interesting thing is that you can really take any image from the internet and you can be anyone. Yeah, yeah, which, which is interesting. And also already, um, you know, it was uh, interesting from the videos from Europe, how mesmerizing that was. There was a shot of a child or a kid playing with it. And mm -hmm. I mean, they were completely mesmerized, right? Like it was quite compelling. Right, right, right. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think that's the, um, that's the, um, that's sort of like the effect that we were kind of um, hoping to get, uh, the type of reaction. I think, um, you know, it really depends on the applications, right? For some things, you know, people get a little disturbed. They don't like the uncanniness, um, the uncanny valley aspect of it. But in this case, the uncanny valley effect here um, seems to be like a, a fun, a fun thing, right? And yes, uh, it yes. seems to bother yes. anyone because the whole thing is just to make to give a fun experience. Though, though the bobblehead version of me was quite disturbing from a, <laughs> from a humor point of view. I, everyone was having a right. good laugh, but that's fine. Okay, yeah. well, <laughs> so you've obviously got this uh, work coming up at SIDGRAPH Asia. Is that the next time that your uh, team or you are, is publishing? 
Uh, no, actually, we have uh, two more papers at ECCB. Uh, that's going to be um, two months before SIGGRAPH Asia. Um, so ECCB is one of the top conferences in computer vision, uh, which yep. will be held in Europe. Um, and um, we have two work there. One is on the facial segmentation that we will present there. And the other work is on, is actually quite interesting, is a paper that uh, tries to produce free viewpoint videos from also minimal input, uh, where instead of using, you know, a high-end capture system where the person has to stay inside a studio, we'll have uh, three or four structural I.O. sensors that are attached on your iPad, and you can capture reasonably good um, 3D performance, entire 3D performance of the human body. Wow, that sounds extraordinary. Are you still continuing with the VR research? I know we haven't discussed it much, but... Um You've had some significant papers in that area, as I said before, sometimes with sensors, sometimes without. Is that still a priority for the team? Of course. Um, we will look uh, into, I mean, we are the, the, the leaders in this field right now. So I mm. think um, we will continue to push that. We have some existing uh, or ongoing work uh, with other uh, interesting companies that I think uh, hopefully you will hear, hear soon about. Um, we're also exploring that with AR. Um, and uh, completely new approaches uh, that allows you to create realistic faces. Uh, you know, it's something that you've never seen before. <laughs> Excellent. Well, look, thanks so much for taking time to uh, talk to us. We really appreciate it. And congratulations, obviously, on the new role. Um, oh, thank you. I know that you have a team that uh, that works with you, but it's great to hear you also collaborating with other universities and stuff. I love the uh, the nature of what USC has done in terms of being um, uh, very active in the community and sharing the the knowledge. I think. Yeah, yeah. I think we're really big on uh, collaborating with uh, different institutions in academia as well as industry. I think this is uh, really really important. Again, thanks so much for your time and congratulations. It's outstanding research. Thank you. Well, thanks guys for that. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. How? Um, before we close out, just want to mention our FX Insider program. Uh, that's our program where we actually rely on contributions from our FX Guide readers and listeners like you to help us do the things we do here from our podcast, covering events such as Seagraph, uh, all the visual effects news, and things like the View Conference that's coming up later this year in Italy. Uh, the membership is $49 a year. Uh, we have a special bonus additional content for those of you who join. Uh, we really appreciate the support of all of you. It's really been fantastic over the years. And if you're interested in that, click the Join FX Insider button on the FX Guide homepage. Well, that's it for me this week. Uh, for both Mike Seymour and Jeff Huser, thanks for taking the time to listen. And we'll talk to you on our next FX podcast. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.